0: Right, thank you very much, and uh, thanks for inviting me. I'm not at all surprised by Ashley's figure that as government spending goes up um, to try to create more confidence, actual confidence goes down, because that's pretty much what you would expect. For a very simple reason that, uh, as most uh, mature adults should know by now, it's not really possible to create confidence through policymaking, and it's not really, make, it's not really possible to make Communities more confidence through different types of projects. It's unfortunately very easy to lose confidence through policy making, but it's much more difficult for, for policies to work in any kind of effective way. And I think the general experience has been that attempts at impression management, which is often what uh, sort of confidence building measures are re- really all about, uh, often miss the target and and, and 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 actually contribute to the construction of the kind of fears that. Uh, were introduced in in the very first introduction. Because we have to remember that much of what we talk about fear is really an affectation. Many dimensions of the fear experience are what we could call rituals of fear, where we remind people of what it is that we should be worried about. I mean, I experienced this even as a university lecturer. Every time I give my very first lecture in September, when I look at a group of uh, 100 undergraduates and I tell them thank you for coming to my first lecture but I'm obliged to tell you that in case there's a fire or an emergency th- there's a door on your right and there's a door on your left and like a stewardess in an airplane you know I basically have to remind the young young men and young women aged 18 to 21 what a door looks like and how they should proceed there and and that kind of ritual which is often fairly benign in, in terms of risk management at a university level really does kick in and serves to remind people that they should be scared and sends very powerful signals. And we do that from patient leaflets. If you buy a, a medicine, last, the other day I bought a little jar of aspirin, but the patient leaflet would actually weigh more than the jar of aspirin <laughs> that I got. And you really do need a PhD in, 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 in kind of pharmacology to interpret all the side effects you could possibly have from that. And we get that in, in in all kinds of circumstances, and and quite often we contribute to that. I was really brought home to me the other day, I was talking to a friend of mine who used to be, may, may still be, the head of counterterrorism in the uh, British Transportation Police, and he made a point, a very simple point. When the bomb went off in in London in, in July 2007, the crime scene that was left behind was there for a very very long time. The the, the kind of the, the bus that exploded and and the closing of the tube was there for a very, very long time, and everybody was aware of the fact that something terrible had happened in London. Uh, not for one day, two days, or three days, but it just went on and on. When the bombs went off in Madrid, you know, equally devastating, in fact far more devastating in terms of loss of life, the railways, the commuter railways were back in action after two and a half days, three days, and the crime scene was cleared away. Very different reaction as to how you manipulate, how you deal with an event like that. and I commend the Madrid uh, sort of approach, which basically uh, sort of is is one where we just get on with stuff uh, rather than sort of sending out these signals of be afraid and be very afraid. And I think one of the problems that we're confronted with is that we have a cultural script, particularly in British society, but it's much wider than that, which continually seeks to dramatize fear, to give it shape and tangibility, and which continually dramatizes fear and security. I do think... As grown-ups, we should also begin to be a bit more doubtful about all the different figures that, that we get, about perceptions of fear, all the crime statistics, but all the, all the other statistics. I mean, what are perceptions? We talk about perceptions as if it's a very meaningful, you know, sort of robust term, but perceptions, to me, the sociologist, is what people tell you, or more specifically, it's what people tell you know, uh, somebody doing the survey. And you don't need to have a PhD in sociology to understand that quite often we incite people to come up with the right kind of answer. I'm always very suspicious when I open up a newspaper and it says, research shows, dot, dot, dot. Right? And, and usually when you see research shows, dot, 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 you know basically that it's somebody's prejudice masquerading as research, <laughs> especially when it involves children. You know, how many times have you heard children tell us? You know, sort of, And then they get these profound sociological terms that come out of the mass of children as they tell us, all these kind of things. And and, and all that's happening is that adult prejudices are being recycled through the mass of children. So we have to be very careful about perceptions. And if you are going to think about perceptions, then we should really study it and try to understand it and contextualize it. I became particularly interested in this problem of perceptions because of my involvement in a study which compares people's insecurities and fears across different European countries. It's an EU project that looks at People's insecurities, and the first thing that I became aware of when I looked at the research, and we did a, we basically analyzed uh, survey data and other data from uh, that was available to us from different European countries, is just how unstable people's insecurities and fears are. And you know, if you were to look at it, you know, you will find that uh, one-year terrorism is the biggest fear of people, and then it drops nowhere. It's like number twenty-one. Uh, and, and you find that kind of the incredible degree of fluctuation that occurs over a period of time. And I was quite interested to kind of make sense of this. What does this really mean? Why is there that kind of instability in what people say about their fears and, and insecurities? And you begin to realize that actually when you look at the figures what people say about their fears are highly contextual. Right? There, there never is one fear uh, that predominates in people's imagination. It's contextualized. It's It's linked to people's socioeconomic circumstances. It's linked to their gender, their 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 demographic position within generations. It's linked to the kind of communities that they live in. I was involved in a a study of 12 big cities globally, which looked at everywhere from Mumbai, Beijing, to London and Paris. And it became very interesting that one of the, the key markers of people's fears was, as you would expect, their socioeconomic position. The more secure you were in terms of your social circumstances, the less you feared a variety of factors. The more insecure you were economically, the more you you were worried about crime and your neighbors, about government, about the police, about a a large number of different kind of factors. And that, that to me kind of really brought out a very important point, which is that we've got to begin to understand the contextual character of fears, including the fear of crime, which by the way, the fear of crime was the only fear of all the public fears that, that, that we read about in the newspaper that actually came up time and time again in virtually every, uh, every uh, community, every nation. Uh, fear of terrorism, fear of global warming, you know, fear of obesity, all the other kind of big public fears were nowhere in, in terms of what kind of, uh, kind, of, kind of came across. Now, because of, uh, of, of this kind of unstable character of fear and because the affectation of fear is so powerful in our culture, one of the things that I became very concerned about is to try to understand what people really meant when they said they feared something. In other words, try to get a grip on the tension between what, we, what I would call public fears, these are the public statements we make about fear, and our private thoughts. What we really fear, genuinely. When, you know, when the interviewer isn't there and you're sitting around the breakfast table and you look at you know, the watch you know, and you want to say something to your wife or husband or your children, You know, what is it that you really fear? And I think that's very, very important because although private fears and insecurities are influenced by public ones and and, and by by culture, they are not the same. And and as you will know, our fears as individuals are highly atomized, highly privatized. Uh, One of the characters of of fearing in the 21st century that that distinguishes it from any other historical period is the atomized character of the fear experience. You know, every culture throughout history has certain dominant fears that defined their era. In my grandparents' time, you know, they all feared unemployment. If you were living through the 30s, the fear of unemployment, the fear of the depression, of economic insecurity, in some sense bound people together. It was a common narrative that influenced people's outlook. And and therefore, you know, it, it wasn't something that you had to explain. You could take for granted that you all shared. If you were my parents' generation in the 50s, the dominant fear that defines the year would be the fear of a nuclear war. And it wasn't just my father or my mother, but a lot of other parents would have been scared by a very small number of fears that define our period. What is the dominant fear of the 21st century? The minute you ask the question, you realize there isn't one. Some of us fear obesity, others are worried about our health, somebody else is worried about immigration. The guy down the road is worried about global warming. The the, the lady there is worried about terrorism. There really isn't one public fear, one culture of fear that binds us together into a a common community. And that's got a very important implication because it means that when we fear, we fear in a far more atomized, individuated, private kind of a way than at any other time. It renders our fear experience a relatively arbitrary character, something that is very difficult to capture uh, through surveys and through interviews, uh, and even through qualitative techniques. It's not that easy to capture. Yeah? And you have to really uh, sort of try to sort of uh, interpret uh, what the information is that you are getting. The other thing that I think is quite important is that people's fears often do not correspond to the officially sanctioned fears. Uh, what people genuinely fear is often things that you cannot say in public. We do live in a world where there's a kind of the language of our cultural elites, sort of the media, you know, what you're expected to say and what really worries you. And this was brought home to me very recently by a number of studies that was carried out in Spain and, 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 and France and in Germany. Where basically, you know, when people were asked what they were really worried about and it kind of looked at it and they insisted that they kind of prodded people a lot of people said that they really didn't like Jews and also didn't really like Muslims. And when you looked at, for example, I mean, in Spain, the figures were phenomenally high. You know, sort of, uh, they, they, uh, I think it was something like 40% or 45% of school children said that they really wouldn't like to have a Jewish kid or a Muslim kid or a, or a Romani child sitting next to them in the classroom. Right. And I think people were shocked by that. You know, they, were, they were shocked by these kinds of fears and these kinds of anxieties. So you don't think uh, that you have such a large number of people with strong anti-Semitic, anti-Muslim, anti-Gypsy sentiments. And of course, that really doesn't come across in public discussions of fears. And certainly, I know that uh, quite often research contributes to this this disjuncture between people's private fears, their real private existential fears. And we say in public, just by the questions we ask. I'm always, I just written an email a couple of months ago to the Eurobarometer. I said, look, you continually ask the same kind of questions. You, you, the kind of questions you ask are going to get the predictable answers. Instead of asking, you know, what's, you know do you fear terrorism or do you fear you know, global warming, sit down with them and ask them, what are you worried about? Don't prompt them. Try to uh, have an open ended discussion with them. You know, what is it that you are really worried about? And when you ask that kind of question, and I've done that a little bit very recently, You'll find that, for example, one of the fears that comes up, and this came up in the, in the uh, study that, I carried, that we carried out that looked at different cities, one of the fears that, that comes across very, very high is the fear that parents have about the future of their children. You forget about it, but it's an old historic fear. You know, parents, mothers and fathers, spend a phenomenal amount of time. I don't know if any of you are mothers and fathers here, but if you are, I'm sure you will agree. You do spend a lot of time being worried about your kid and you worry, and, and, and you worried about their future, and, and, and the kind of, and I've written a book on this called Parent with Parenting, the kind of fears that you have towards the welfare and safety of your children is phenomenally widespread. And yet it doesn't really kind of come across, but it has got very important implications because many of the other fears that we talk about, the fear of crime, for example, are contextually related to these kinds of fairly basic uh, sort of fears. So what I want to suggest is that surveys indicate Quite often, it's these private, banal, everyday fears that exercise an incredible influence upon the way that we perceive our security, upon the way we fear, and what we fear, and, and the way we kind of express that. Now, I began by saying that confidence measures, I don't think, work. And, and I know it's a bit unpopular in, in, in an audience such as this, and I didn't just say it to be flippant or whatever, but, I, but, but genuinely, you know, sort of, uh, I, I think this is a, an elusive Uh, project altogether. So the question that I'm beholden to answer is, what is it that can make communities feel uh, confident? And I think that there are a number of crucial variables, and most of them are cultural except for one. I think the most important variable, from my understanding of of people's fear and feeling of confidence, is the quality of intergenerational interaction. There is no doubt in my mind that generation is one of the missing ingredients in all the studies of fear. Now, no. Ashley I others have mentioned that we know that, for example, you, you know, young people are less worried about crime than old people. But on every single fear that I can think of, there's a generational difference. Young people are more worried about the environment than old people. You know, so there's a generational difference about how you feel about terrorism, about health. It's really crucial. I'm always shocked and surprised that we not we don't study the generational dynamic. But there's also another <coughs> important element here. So one of the, you know, when we talk about antisocial behavior when we're talking about the fear of crime, when we're talking about communities being insecure, what we're principally talking about is the disconnection of generations. That's really what we're discussing, is the disconnection between generations. It's a lack of interaction. It's when you have children aged 12 and 13 who have never had a conversation with an adult other than their own parents or their family member or their teachers. That's the world that we live in. Where children's behavior from age four or five onwards is completely uncontained by adult culture. You know, where grown-up people like you and me, when we see a child misbehave on the street, we kind of look at our shoelaces, we look at the other way, and we pretend that nothing is happening instead of intervening and saying, don't do that. Or, or conversely, when a child is distressed and crying, instead of going up to that child and cuddling that child and reassuring that child, especially if you're a man, you kind of run away and don't really intervene. And therefore, we have this real disconnection, which basically means that children do grow up in ways where their behavior is uncontained, where they do become laws unto themselves insofar as a generational interaction is concerned, and where people, particularly older people, do feel anxiety and insecurity because they don't know what kind of conversation they can have with a child. Right? I think that, that element is really, really important, and, and it seems to me that uh, a confident community is one where there is an intergenerational conversation that goes on on a regular basis and that's something you cannot do to policy although governments can encourage that and create the conditions where that is made easier that's got to come from the people the adults in particular (coughs) within the community itself the second important thing and I think this is to me one reason why I'm a bit skeptical about confidence building measures is because it seems to me that the one of the other important elements for a confident community depends on the quality of taken for granted informal interactions. It's informality that is really important. It's when you can relax and tell the postman, you know, okay, I'm, uh, I'm not going to be home b- b- uh, tomorrow, but you can leave the package, you know, at my neighbor's or somebody else on the street, and you know that that's that's all right, because that's the way these things are done. Those everyday taken for granted informal interactions are, are really, really so important. And when I was doing my research, I noticed that in many places, the only place where that informal, taken for granted interaction, community interaction occurs, is in front of the school gate. In the school gate where moms and dads are forced to talk to each other, rely on each other, help each other out, and a certain informal network uh, is then kind of created. So I think that that's, a, that's an important element uh, that we have to give a lot of scope for. And one, my worry is, is that if you have professional, professionally driven confidence building measures, it undermines informality. It formalizes networks and relationships in ways that may well be uh, sort of uh, un- unhelpful. Just on that uh, point, as an aside, I think uh, it was uh, the previous two speakers made the point uh, there seems to be a, a disjunction between the local and the national. Well, from a sociological point of view, it's not at all surprising that people are more positive about their locality than about developments nationally. very simple. You have parents who are worried about their children's education, are desperately worried about their children's education. They will tell you that the school system is terrible, but then they will also say, that but my school is good. And I think that's a way we cope with life. I think that's the way that people you know, so are able to give meaning to their experience, what they are really saying. This is where I live, this is where my school is, this is my street. I cannot simply say this is terrible or bad. I've got to make the best uh, of the situation that we're in. I think that's really what they're saying when they're like at this juncture in perception. Finally, uh, and this is where the police and governments do have an important role to play, confidence indirectly can be shaped and helped through the effectiveness of the official response. One of the things that we did in this research project is to look at the way that people react to incidents, uh, for example, to a terrorist attack. You know, what, you know, how does the public react? And one of the things that became very, very clear is that the key variable was the way that the police or the government handled it. So to give you two opposite examples, do you remember Hurricane Katrina and how the Bush administration screwed up? Not surprisingly, government confidence in the ability of the police and of the state to manage a terrorist attack or to manage a major act of destruction just fell. And and it was just amazing. It just dipped like anything uh, almost immediately after Hurricane Katrina. Positive example is is what happened to public opinion in Britain after the failed attempts of those bombs in Glasgow, I don't know if you remember them, when when, when the attempt to blow up uh, uh, bits of the airport was contained fairly effectively, where the Prime Minister came across quite credibly and sounded genuinely reassuring, all of a sudden confidence you know, sort of began to show up. And, and I think you'll find that that's the way that it works in, in general. I think that's the area I think that I would rather the police worked on rather than being social workers or psychologists and, you know, or public relations people. I think effective response is, is really where it's at rather than all these other things, which I think at the end of the day is, is a waste of money. The final point that I want to end on, uh, which which to me is the key concept, is that of social capital. I I know many of you are familiar with the concept of social capital, but the way that I always think of social capital is this. If you take every form of capital, physical capital, financial capital, social capital, they all work differently in communities when something bad happens. You have a riot, you have a bomb going off, you have a fire, maybe a natural disaster. When that occurs, physical capital is reduced. Your buildings are destroyed, you, know, you, have, you, have, you have infrastructure being undermined, physical capital is destroyed. Financial capital also diminishes because we lose money on it, there's less resources av- available to do stuff. But the one capital that need not diminish but can actually increase is that of social capital. Because the experience that we have from human history, Britain included, is that often when bad things happen, and when people are allowed to cultivate their informal networks, sociability and the quality of relation between people actually increases. We know this for a fact because you talk to old grannies and they will tell you, they lived in the East end of London, that the Blitz was the time of their life. They really had a very nice time. And when we do interview with people that go through very horrible experiences, they will have a kind slight of positive, slightly romantic, slightly nostalgic recollection of it. For the very simple reason, that communities become conscious of the fact that they are communities precisely in these times. And I think it's in these circumstances that confidence can really, really emerge. And the job of, of the government is to allow that to nourish and to flourish by not intervening, by giving it space. Maybe giving it a bit of resources, maybe giving it help in terms of you know, with the infrastructure or providing the, the necessary underpinnings of that, but at the end of the day, it's gotta be uh, a, a process that the community cultivates for itself, and I think that seems to me to be the central message for both containing fear, but also creating more confidence in our society and the communities that we live in, thank you.